Hello, everyone, and welcome to the December 4th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the pervasive bullying by a University of California Berkeley women's soccer coach against one of their players violated the Unruh Civil Rights Act. The plaintiff in this case, Renee Thomas, was a well-regarded soccer player who was recruited by the University of California Berkeley head coach Neil McGuire to play soccer for the university in the 2018-2019 season. McGuire knew at the time that Thomas had already committed to play for the University of Colorado, which had offered her a scholarship. So McGuire assured Thomas that she would be on UCB's women's soccer team for four years. Thus, Thomas turned down her scholarship with the University of Colorado to accept a non-scholarship spot on UCB's team and joined the team as one of six non-scholarship players. She then performed well, complied with the expectations McGuire laid out for her, and participated in every opportunity available to her to improve her performance. And along the way, Coach McGuire told her she was a promising enough to rival the best performing forward on the team, and she was honored at the team's annual banquet as the most improved player. Then during the 2018-2019 season, Thomas experienced and witnessed abusive behavior by McGuire. She said he lost his temper at the athletes on many occasions, and in fits of rage, she said he singled out athletes and berated them in front of the team to make an example of them and to strike fear in the witnessing athletes. He called young female athletes names, cursed at them, and degraded them with personal insults both related to and unrelated to athletic performance. And she alleged he tormented them psychologically and punished them with grueling workouts. Without warning or explanation, McGuire released Thomas and four others from the team, and Thomas alleged it was rare for Coach McGuire to release players from the team, and quite unusual that he released five players at one time. Thomas initially filed her lawsuit in federal court, but the federal district judge dismissed the first amended complaint without leave to amend, finding that Thomas failed to state any of her claims and leave to amend would be futile. So Thomas then filed her complaint in California Superior Court in 2020, alleging claims against Coach McGuire and Jim Knowlton, UCB's athletic director, for violation of the Unruh Act and negligence, and against McGuire for breach of fiduciary duty and fraud. The defendants demurred, and the trial court sustained the demur with leave to amend only the fraud claim against McGuire. They did so holding that Thomas failed to state causes of action for violation of the Unruh Act, negligence or breach of fiduciary duty, and that the fraud claim against UCB was barred by governmental immunity. The trial court then sustained another demur without leave to amend to her second amended complaint. Thomas appealed the dismissal, and the Court of Appeal reversed, as it concluded that Thomas sufficiently pleaded a cause of action for sexual harassment against the head coach and UCB. And in all other respects, it affirmed the trial court's decision 
in the published case of Thomas versus the Regents of the University of California. The first cause of action in Thomas's first amended complaint alleged violation of the Unruh Act and alleged that McGuire and Knowlton engaged in unreasonable, arbitrary, and invidious discrimination against her and denied her full and equal privileges as compared with male athletes, and that her gender was a substantial motivating reason for McGuire and Knowlton's conduct. The court noted that, as developed in the employment context, federal and state law generally recognize two theories of liability for sexual harassment claims. One is quid pro quo harassment, where a term of employment is conditioned upon submission to unwelcome sexual advances and hostile work environment, where the harassment is sufficiently pervasive as to alter the conditions of employment and create an abusive work environment. This present case involved the hostile work environment form of sexual harassment. The plaintiff in this case must prove that the defendant's conduct would have interfered with a reasonable employee's work performance and would have seriously affected the psychological well-being of a reasonable employee and that she was actually offended. And the plaintiff must also show that the harassing conduct took place because of the plaintiff's sex, but need not show that the conduct was motivated by sexual desire. Harassment because of sex may be shown where an abusive bully takes advantage of a traditionally female workplace and because he is more comfortable when bullying women than when bullying men. To plead a cause of action for sexual harassment in the form of hostile work environment, it is only necessary to show that gender is a substantial factor in the discrimination and that if the plaintiff had been a man, she would have not been treated in the same manner. The Court of Appeal concluded that plaintiff's allegations unquestionably describe pervasive bullying behavior toward the young women on the soccer team that created a hostile environment. And there's no legal requirement that hostile acts be overtly sex or gender-specific in context, whether marked by language, by sex, or gender stereotypes, or by sexual overtures. The California Attorney General joined a multi-state coalition and filed an amicus brief urging the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse a lower court decision which held that only workers employed directly in the transportation industry are exempt from mandatory arbitration of employer-employee disputes. The multi-state amicus brief supports the view of the workers in the widely followed case of Bissonnette versus Lepage Bakeries. They are truck drivers who deliver baked goods to restaurants and stores for baking conglomerate flowers foods. The Bissonnette case involved a dispute between two commercial truck drivers who sued the company and claimed that they were not subject to the Federal Arbitration Act. That's because they were transportation workers as defined by and exempted from mandatory arbitration by the FAA statute. The United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed the district court decision 
that the drivers were not transportation workers under the FAA because the drivers were not employed by a company in the transportation industry, but instead by a bakery that simply used transportation services to distribute its products and that the driver's primary duties did not involve transportation, but rather the sale and merchandising of bakery products. In their brief, the attorneys general asked the U.S. Supreme Court to reverse that ruling because they say it is inconsistent with precedent that has rejected defining the exemption by industry. California is home to over 1.5 million transportation workers. Of these workers, about 312,000 are truck drivers in a variety of industries. And many of these workers are directly related to the movement of goods, even if they do not directly work for a trucking company. The California Attorney General joined the Attorney Generals of 15 other states or districts in filing this amicus brief. The U.S. Supreme Court agreed to hear the case last September, and a decision will probably be forthcoming in 2024. And in another appellate decision, the County of Ventura prevailed in an overtime pay class action filed by some of its employees. These plaintiffs were Ventura County firefighters and law enforcement officers. Both are members of two unions, the Ventura County Professional Firefighters Association and the Ventura County Deputy Sheriff's Association. The county sponsors various health insurance plans for its eligible employees and their dependents. And under agreements between the unions and the county, plaintiffs are eligible to enroll in union-sponsored health insurance plans instead of the county's plans. The county manages health benefits for union and non-union employees alike through its Flexible Benefits Program. As part of this cafeteria plan, the county provides its employees with a flexible benefit allowance, known as the Flex Credit, which employees may use to purchase health benefits. And an employee who has already had medical insurance from another source, such as a spouse's plan, may choose to opt out of the Flexible Benefits Program if the if they pay an opt-out fee. The county then subtracts this opt-out fee from the flex credit and then pays the balance to the employee in cash. The county treated this personal residual cash payment as part of the plaintiff's regular rate of pay when they calculated their overtime compensation. But the county did not include the value of the opt-out fee. Therefore, these plaintiffs filed this class action and argued that the exclusion of the opt-out fee from their regular rate of pay resulted in the county underpaying plaintiffs for overtime work. The district court granted summary judgment to the county, concluded, concluding that the opt-out fee was properly excluded from plaintiffs' regular rate of pay when calculating overtime pay. Then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the district court in the published case of Anthony Sanders versus uh, the County of Ventura. For various reasons pointed out in the opinion, the Ninth Circuit held that the county properly excluded the flex credit opt-out fee from these plaintiffs' regular rate of pay for purposes of calculating their overtime compensation.
And in another decision, the Workers' Compensation Exclusive Remedy provision ended a lawsuit for a worker's fatal injuries incurred on a business trip. In this case, Denise Abraham worked for Wells Fargo at its business support call center in Sacramento. As part of a team of traveling bankers that went to Virginia to train new call center employees who had been hired to staff a call center in that state. Each day's training session was scheduled from 7 a.m. until 3 p.m., and after 3, they were free to do whatever they wanted. After training ended for the day, on the third day of the trip, the traveling bankers drank alcohol in the lobby of their hotel, and then Denise Abraham and two of her colleagues went to dinner at a karaoke bar using one of the rental cars paid for by Wells Fargo where they danced and drank alcohol and ate snacks. Shortly after 1.30 a.m., Abraham and two colleagues left the karaoke bar and used the rental car provided by Wells Fargo to drive back to their hotel room. Abraham was a passenger in the car when the driver of the rental car crashed into a tree and Abraham died from her injuries. Her parents sued Wells Fargo Bank and the driver for the wrongful death of their daughter, Denise Abraham. Wells Fargo moved for summary judgment asserting plaintiff's suit was barred by the exclusive remedy provisions of the Workers' Compensation Act, and the trial court agreed and granted the motion and dismissed the case. The Court of Appeal affirmed the dismissal and the unpublished case of Abraham versus Wells Fargo Bank. It reasoned that under the commercial traveler rule, an employee traveling on the employer's business is regarded as acting within the course of employment during the entire period of his, her, or their travel, and procuring food and shelter are all incidents of that employment. And where injuries are sustained during the course of such activities, the Workers' Compensation Act applies, thus triggering the exclusive remedy rule. And now our crime report. The Labor Commissioner's Office has settled a lawsuit against Glendale-based Calcrete Construction Incorporated for over $1 million for multiple wage theft violations, including overtime and paid sick leave law violations, affecting 249 construction workers. The settlement will pay workers overtime wages owed with interest, with payments ranging from $344 to $20,893 per employee. The lawsuit claimed that Calcrete forced its workers under threat of termination to sign contracts stating they were independent contractors, and then the company used staffing agencies, Dominion Staffing, and Southeast Personnel Leasing to pay the workers. And now our regulatory news. Two inspectors from Cal OSHA were denied consent to inspect the premises of Calvary Chapel of San Jose, which is located on church grounds. So they obtained an inspection search warrant from the Santa Clara County Superior Court. They supported their request for a warrant with declarations from these two inspectors who said they opened the investigation in response to a complaint that Calvary Christian Academy was not complying with COVID-19 prevention, face covering, and outbreak reporting requirements. 
Using the search warrant, they conducted a site inspection and issued five citations alleging 12 violations of safety orders, resulting in more than $67,000 in penalties. On appeal, the employer filed a motion to suppress this evidence, arguing all evidence from the inspection should be suppressed because the warrant had been issued without probable cause, and the administrative law judge granted the employer's motion. The Occupational Safety and Health Appeals Board affirmed the administrative law judge's ruling that Cal OSHA's warrant application lacked the requisite probable cause. However, the case was remanded for a ruling on the application of the good faith exception to suppression of the evidence. Cases discussing the constitutionality of inspection warrants in Cal OSHA proceedings provide that the search and seizure requirements of the federal and state constitutions mandate a probable cause showing requirement for Cal OSHA inspection warrants, which they did not show in this case. However, the board follows the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule, and it will only exclude evidence pursuant to the exclusionary rule when it can be established that the warrant was not obtained in good faith. In this case, the administrative law judge has not ruled on the application of the good faith exception, so the case was remanded for consideration and a ruling on the application of this good faith exception in this case. The DWC has issued a second notice of public comment period for modifying the text of some proposed amendments to the QME regulations. These proposed regulations are largely intended to provide greater clarity to the wording. For example, the proposed new rules provide for a clearer definition of and the reason for encryption of electronic transmissions. It adds a new regulation that delineates the new continuing education hour and subject matter requirements and clarifying the definition of new medical legal evaluation for purposes of satisfying criteria for a QME unavailability. Also to provide criteria for the administrative director's use of the exercise and discretion in the QME reappointment process. It is expected that these proposed rule changes will take effect in early 2024. And a reported decline in the state average weekly wage means there will not be a temporary disability or permanent disability rate increase for 2024. The U.S. Department of Labor has issued new data showing California's state average weekly wage edged down nearly a half a percent in the 12 months ending March 31, 2023. As a result, the CWCI reported that there will be no change in California's minimum and maximum TD and PD rates for 2024 work injuries, nor and other benefits that are tied to increases in the state average weekly wage. The 2022-2023 decline in the state average weekly wage also means that annual cost of living adjustments to life pension and permanent uh, TD benefits on existing claims with injury dates on or after January 1st, 20, 2003 
will not apply next January. And the maximum rate for death benefit installment payments, which are paid in the same manner and amount as TTD, will remain unchanged. But the CWCI encouraged claims administrators to review the latest state average weekly wage figures with their legal counsel to confirm that benefit payments are appropriate and accurate. And now our medical news. Biobots, also known as biological robots, are a type of robotics that utilizes living cells or other components to create machines that can perform various tasks. These devices are still in their early stages of development, but they hold immense potential for various applications, including medicine. Anthrobots are a type of biobot specifically created using human cells. These microscopic robots range from the width of a human hair to the point of a sharpened pencil. They are self-assembled in a lab dish and show remarkable healing effects, particularly in neuron growth across damaged areas under lab conditions. In a new study published in Advanced Science this week, scientists investigated the behavior of anthrobots that are capable of regenerating damaged neurons in a lab. This emerging multidisciplinary effort to control the behavior of cellular collectives has garnered much excitement, and it promises to revolutionize efforts to produce complex tissues for clinical applications in regenerative medicine and beyond. The researchers in this study believe anthropods may eventually acquire other applications, such as clearing plaque buildup for atherosclerosis patients, repairing damaged spinal cords or retinal nerves, detecting bacteria and cancer cells, or even delivering drugs to specific body tissues. UCLA is offering a new Bachelor of Arts in Disability Studies, which aims to bridge academic theories with lived experience and encourage students to advocate for change in their communities. The program is the first disability studies degree at the University of California and includes an internship program in a community-based agency and a capstone project. As part of the upper division coursework for the major, students must take four electives on interdisciplinary perspectives in disability. These courses are offered by a variety of departments such as community health, English, and gender studies. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news our podcast on our other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with the Floyd, Scarron, Manuki, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.